I mean, I just, it's refreshing to know that there's someone out there like you who would, who steps out on that extra mile and uh, walks with their patients and whatever it is that they're going through. Well, I also hear that there's a bunch of dedicated hospice chaplains that even make the effort to put on a show for all of us to listen to. <laughs> uh, I mean, that way you created a center of excellence that, hey, take this stuff serious. Don't just go there and do your little dance, but actually think about what you're doing. I exactly. mean, that's why you do this show, I hope. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have a returning guest, Chaplain Daniel Haas. Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Could you introduce yourself uh, to our audience? So Saul just informed me that I'm the first ever guest to come back on the show. <laughs> so that tells you something about me. <laughs> um, well, that just means I, I stir in many pots. So I'm a chaplain, full-time hospice. I also do a little hospital on the side, and I'm in the Army Reserve. So I combine various chaplaincies into one person, which means there is different things to talk about. That's why it's good to have some more time together today. Uh, since I wasn't available the last time that I was on vacation, when you had your conversation with Saul, uh, he tells me a lot about your uh, involvement with the military. Can you give me some of your background again for me so I can understand? So I grew up uh, in Germany, born and raised there. Um, my little family came over to the U.S. in 2008. And every church I've served in this country, every family in every church had one military connection or another. And that wasn't an experience I had growing up, so I wanted to experience that and walk in those boots and eventually uh, joined the Army Reserve as a chaplain. And in order to do that, you, in my denomination, you had to do some CPE, so I did that. And the clinical pastoral education just continued with extended units over the years, eventually became board certified and um, however that goes. Um, and so I've been in the Army Reserve for coming almost seven years now. Um, and it's always been good to have that change of pace on the side, that weekend of playing in the dirt, as my family calls it, because <laughs> um, it keeps me grounded in an experience that is somewhat alien from yeah, everybody's civilian life, I want to say, um, just entering another world. Can you open that world to us? What does that world look like? So in the reserve, you have two major populations. Um, you have college-age people who are there for the educational benefits. 
which is a wonderful thing because um, it allows them to um, yeah, pursue their lives and careers. And then you got a whole population that just came off of active duty and they come with all the issues um, transitioning back into civilian life. So typically in a military career, you finish off your last few years unless you make a whole career of it um, in reserve status and don't serve full-time on active duty anymore. And those folks easily get frustrated with civilian life in general and reserve life especially where the discipline is not as tight, the focus is not as clear, and civilian life is hard. And if you only know the civilian world, you don't notice how hard it is because you have so many choices to make. Um, there's not a set path for you, what to do with your life, how to behave, the norms are not clear. Everybody develops their own little thing, and maybe you had a good family growing up that gave you some guidance or you didn't. Um, for those coming out of the military that never seen a world outside of the military, it's disorienting and you can get lost here. So um, merging those worlds is really what I do there. Do you have a lot of work to do? I mean, it's a question. I mean, is there a lot to be done in your chaplain role there? Because it sounds like it would be enormous, just from your from what you're talking about. It can be enormous in that one tiny moment when you sit with that person and touch on those rough experiences of, hey, my girlfriend just left me and I miss my baby and um, those things, or I just lost my job and uh, I don't know what to do. Um, and then there's a lot of um, struggle with suicide. Mm -hmm. So typically I have two or so suicides in my units over the years, every year. Um, so yeah, there, there is those tough moments. Um, but then on the surface, I could just say, hey, it's one weekend a month and a couple of weeks in the summer. So it's not all that time involved just because the duty is limited. But the reality is, yeah, I get calls uh, any time of day and any day whenever people have trouble. Um, no, it's, it's a part-time job. So in, in that sense, it's limited. But the intensity can be pretty high sometimes. Mm. Is there a program to help this uh, returning military to reorient to civilian life? It looks like that really causes a lot of psychosocial challenges. There is. Um, on the active duty side, they have their terminal leave that has programs where the last few weeks of their active duty time, they pretty much do nothing but get prepared for that. But the reality is you get dumped into a culture that is not yours. Um, you buy a house or find some housing, try to create a career for yourself. And there's programs for all those little aspects. Where do I want to live? Who do I want to live with? Um, what am I going to do? Um, on the civilian side, you know the equivalent of when people retire. They, they have all these dreams of it's so beautiful on the other side. But the reality is all of a sudden you sit at home and you don't know what to do with yourself. Um, mm. So making plans for an unknown future is tough regardless of the transition you go through. You are very, uh, I mean succinct in my opinion on how you see what is going on with military folks as they're leaving the active duty and trying to adjust to, and you're not even talking about PTSD in its entirety either. You're just talking about from one, I mean, to hear you talk about how regimented a life was to something 
totally contrary to what it was before, where you can do and whatever you want to, when you want to, anything you want to do. I never thought of it as being such a stressful, traumatic change or issue. And here you are telling me that that is very much the case and very true. Is that an accurate depiction? Yeah, it is traumatic because um, you lose all the certainty. I mean, you could compare it emotionally maybe to a divorce where you had those great hopes and good times in a relationship and eventually it crashes and burns and you exit it and yeah, there you are as a person all by yourself, uh, got to find yourself and maybe some new meaning going forward and whatever you want to do. But PTSD is one thing that is always brought up with veterans a lot. Mm-hmm. And that is true that population has a higher rate of PTSD compared to the general population, but not that much. Um, oh. So it's, it's not as rampant as you think compared to the general population, um, just because... Um, well, the definition, I guess, changes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you diagnose more and the disorder shows up more, but we all have post-traumatic stress. We just went through that the last couple of days here with Laura approaching Houston. So when that hurricane came, what did I do? I went to the garage. I got my rubber boots out that I had on during Harvey, put them in the trunk of my car because you never know. Mm-hmm. The whole city went buying toilet paper, water, batteries, whatever they needed in case power goes out and whatnot. We all snap into survival mode, right? hypervigilant. So all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress are right there. Because um, Harvey is still on our minds and hearts here in Houston. And whenever major weather occurs, um, we all snap back into those survival mechanisms. And that's what... PTSD can be about when you can't function. Um, It's not like doing all the preparatory steps like I did with my supplies. Everybody does that, and that's okay. That's not in disorder. Uh, The disorder kicks in when it starts to rain, and you think, oh, no, we're going to flood. The world's going to end. And you go into those feelings. And around me in the neighborhood, I see that. Whenever there's a big rain coming in, people freak out and become dysfunctional mm-hmm. um, to an extent. Um, and that's one way of experiencing PTSD in a non-military environment. You also work in hospice. Uh, how, would, how do you differentiate between the two and how, you're, how, you, how you address, or do you, when you address someone who is in the dying process? Well, I do and I don't, right? So as a chaplain, regardless of where I'm at, I help people deal with stuff. That's mm-hmm. what I do. Yeah. Um, and in the military, that means I help them stay in the fight. In the hospital, that help that means I help them cope with hospitalization. And in hospice, that means I help them embrace their mortality. Hmm. Um, so I'm a chaplain, and I provide spiritual and emotional support. But the missions are different. Mm-hmm, um, so mm-hmm. again, when I come from a military language angle, um, I look at what the mission is, uh, and the mission here is to provide comfort care at the end of life and whatever that means spiritually. And then you also even have the people surrounding you that function similarly, right? So in the military, you have your commander and your commander gives your intent for the religious support program. And of course I have my DCS, my director of clinical services 
who sets the guidance with the nurse case manager for how to best support that patient. And we do that in the team with the guidance from our leadership. Mm-hmm. And when I do staff care here in chaplaincy, that's exactly the same as in the Army. It's just that the nurse that cries her heart out over the bus of a patient, just like yesterday, needs that gentle touch of a spiritual, emotional care provider like myself. We talk about that, and then she's ready to go back into the fight, um, in the fight of nursing and helping folks out. So um, I treat it similarly, but of course the mission is different. It looks like you're the consistent soldier. Cool. <laughs> Daniel Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but I'm sure apart from there's a mission. I mean, can you imagine the transition from doing um, an emergency with the army and being called to go to a hospice emergency? What kind of mental transitions do you go through or maybe nothing? It's always keep an open mind. I mean, um, you go in, you assess, you create an intervention, and that leads to a good outcome. That's the clinical method, um, and that's that applies through all the fields, right? If I come in with a free notion of what I want to see there, it's not going to be good for them because they have to show me what they need. I need to see what's going on there um, and properly assess. If, if I come with a that mind or what I want to do there, it's probably not going to be helpful. Yeah, but you're the chaplain. You know everything. Uh, especially that I don't know anything. <laughs> everybody is the expert in their own life, right? So patients and family there you know go. what just, they need. Just checking with you, Dan, seeing if you're still walking on two feet here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So talk to us. I mean, everything, it looks, everything is grounded in how you view life and how you understand theology, your place in theology and your place as a caregiver. How, did you, how yeah. did you get there, Daniel? Well, I grew up in the church. Granted, that was in Germany, so that is culturally and language-wise a little different from here. Um, but growing up in the church, I've always known the comforting presence of God and the loving community around you. Um, and that has nurtured me. Um, and then I went to go study and became a pastor and kept doing that. Um, and I imagine if people don't have that, they look for it. And sometimes they need to leave and change their traditions and whatnot. Um, faith just has kept me steady. It has worked for me. Maybe I was just lucky. How did you recognize your call? What was your call? Well, it was around the age of confirmation, so 13-ish, um, when school made us do all these internships in various places. And I figured out that I don't do things well in terms of items. So I didn't want to do anything that had to produce or sell or move or do things. Mm-hmm. So I don't do, deal with things. And then dealing with people, I found that if I want to sell them a service or something, uh, I wasn't interested in that either. So I just wanted to be there for the person, uh, regardless of services I want to sell or products I want to push. Um, and then that came together with my church experience of the grace of God just being there for me. And then, hey, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. 
So it's been always a uh, your your church early church experience was a, a very very good experience for you then. Yeah, I guess that's what I would have to say then. Yeah, because we were talking to someone just before you that did not have a good church experience, but still ended up years and years later being understanding his call to ministry. So I mean, it's 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 interesting that you got uh, you saw something there right at the beginning. Or as, yeah, as I say, that, as I say, the beginning really it was just you know, early on in your your faith journey. Yeah, in the in the beginning, I mean, uh, baptized at seven days old and whatnot. So yes, uh, you can say at the very beginning. However, um, that makes a less compelling story, right? It's it's, <laughs> it's it's a more powerful story the fresher it is. So newly converts are always hyper about their faith and finding what they needed. And then comes a guy like me that says, yeah, it's always been like that. It's all cool. Um, <laughs> so I don't have a compelling story to tell because it's really oh, just okay. the steadiness of it. <laughs> it's a steady story yeah, that's to tell. All, <laughs> it's, a, it's a powerful story for something so steady. How's that? <laughs> so, uh, uh, Daniel, talk to us about we, we Honor Veterans. I think it's such a powerful program. Yeah, so it's a um, joint effort between the Department of Veteran Affairs and the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Um, because the VA has a hospice benefit but don't really provide the service, um, over 90% of veterans receive their hospice care, not inside the VA system, but from outside organizations like Compasses, where I work or wherever you are. So... They want to have a say in how we do things, and that's great because otherwise we wouldn't be smart about it. So there's standards of practice and care and educational opportunities, and there is uh, five levels that you can earn as a program. So as a hospice program, you can go to wehonorveterans.org and sign up and express your interest there. When I first came, um, hospice compasses in Houston here, they were level one. We're now working on level three. And it just grows your capacity to take care of our veterans and their families. So for level one, it comes down to the very basics of whenever a new patient comes on board with the service, take their military history. There's a checklist for that that you fill out. Um, were they on active duty? Um, were they in combat? If they were, what... Uh, what decade or war campaign was it? Because um, down the road, that informs our care. Because um, in Korea, you had a lot of um, cold injuries because they were green. In Vietnam, you got the Agent Orange. Um, so you got different patterns of illness and long-term effects depending on the physical side of what they experienced there. But then also when you look at the emotional impact of a fan in a room of a Vietnam vet sometimes brings up those flashbacks to a helicopter that he saw back in Vietnam. And it's just those things that you can be aware of after you take the military history. Um, and then it's educating staff on exactly those things. So that's level one. And then level two, you start reaching out into the community, talk to your VFWs, your American Legion, and just reach out to foreign uh, veteran of foreign affairs foreign war. So reach out to the veteran community in your community and make those connections and offer to educate them on hospice. 
Um, so that's when not only the social worker, the bereavement coordinator come in, <clears throat> but also the salespeople start getting interested because all of a sudden we're educating the community and uh, connecting outside of ourselves. Uh, right now on level three, it's about the formal connection with the VA medical centers in your area or clinics um, and providing networks with other hospices in the program. Um, yeah, so it, it grows and grows and gets you smarter and smarter and take better care of your veteran patients. So as a hospice chaplain, what do you look for when you do the spiritual history or the military checklist? What do you look for to be of help in that situation? I was really sad one day when I went out to do a spiritual assessment on a patient um, and walked into the house and the wife told me that he was actually in D-Day. Uh, so he was a veteran from the Normandy beaches, but the military history checklist wasn't done. Uh, and I had no idea. And it was actual D-Day that I went to visit. Hmm. So that would have been the greatest opportunity to provide him with a certificate and PIN, which is the process that you go through for each new admitted veteran. But I came on D-Day not knowing that he was A, a veteran, or B, in D-Day, uh, so that was a great missed opportunity, and I used that example and pound and pound and pound mm. in our staff meetings. We need that checklist. We need that checklist because it's really crucial um, to make that meaningful connection that day. Mm. And then there was a, the last time we spoke, you said for Vietnam uh, veterans, uh, the sense of welcome home means a lot. Could you explain more about that? Yeah, I mean, after World War II, Coming home as a veteran was tough like it is in any war, but at least you came good, back from the good war. You were a hero, ticker tape, down to Fifth Avenue, parades. Everybody loved the heroes that came back. In Vietnam, that wasn't really the case. They were spit upon and nobody liked the war, and hence they were killers and hated. Um, so they never got the welcome home that warriors of others' generations did. Um, and similarly, going forward with the Gulf War, I mean, now the largest veteran population have is actually from the Gulf War in 1991, um, just because the older folks are not so present anymore. But the veteran population from the Gulf War is the biggest now, and that wasn't all that popular. And the recent wars are even less popular. So um, depending on how America related to your war they will relate to your experience. And so for Vietnam folks, many of whom come on services now, it's not thank you for your service because they don't believe that. That was something for the greatest generation. But it is welcome home. When you remember that opening mm -hmm. sequence of the first Rambo movie, mm -hmm. that's what it is. They beat you, they kick you out of town. And if you're not that, if you're not the sheriff or whatever it was who kicked him out of town, but you open your arms and embrace him and say, hey, I'm glad you're here with where you came from. How is it, uh, how do you see that it's progressing throughout the country? Oh, um, I find that many, many more hospice programs um, sign up for We Are Veterans, if that's where you're going. Um, yeah. There's great interest in those regional networks like the, um, the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization makes sure that there is um, 
community networks um, where those programs come together regionally and actually at a certain level it's required i think between level two or three it's where the requirement starts to reach out to one another we have mutual support meetings if you will and trainings every month now on zoom obviously with the COVID and whatnot uh, but yeah, reaching out to one another, annual conferences, and connecting best practices, sharing. It's a very popular program, and I hope um, today's outreach will bring even more into the fold. Mm. I hope so, too. In the, in the notes you sent me, there's a note that says 38th parallel, or what is that? As a, as a chaplain, you hear stuff that most people don't, right? We have this wonderful confidentiality uh, so people entrust us with more things than they do others. Um, and I have that one patient, a Korean War veteran, uh, and he tells stories of how he was one of the last to ever leave Korea after the war, um, meaning he crossed the 38th parallel, which is the demarcation line uh, where North and South are divided. But that was actually way after the amethyst. So they shouldn't have been there anymore, but they were. So he's not supposed to talk about it. Uh, so I'm not supposed to talk about it. And here we are in a public podcast. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, every demarcation line is only so clear and every timeline is only so clear um, that you hear stories of folks that they don't want to talk about. And uh, that's another thing that has come up in recent years, and that's moral injury, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. you see and do stuff that you don't want to be part of. Um, and especially in these days with all the police shootings and the violence we see, um, moral injury is rough. And that, that applies to our veteran patients as well to, well, us out here in civilian lives as well. Because the rules of engagement are not always clear. Um, you remember probably that movie with the American sharpshooter where he sits in that tower. Uh, uh, mother runs at a convoy he was protecting. She pulls out a rocket launcher. The sniper takes her down, but then the kids pick pick up the rocket launcher and he says, please don't pick it up, please don't pick it up. But the kid did, mm. so he had to shoot the kid. And of course, in your heart, in your soul, you don't want to shoot a kid. You don't want to shoot that woman either. But once they pick up that weapon and threaten your battle bodies, they become an enemy combatant, and that's what you got to do. Um, and our Vietnam folks, they were ordered to do wrong, to break the law, to burn villages they shouldn't have burned, to cause civilian casualties that they shouldn't have caused. And they can't admit them to themselves, uh, but once they can, they break, they fall apart. Um, and retirement the Vietnam folks again, retirement at such a point when all of a sudden after a busy life of work and family and whatnot, you sit in your house and the demons of the past come up because they got time to come up. And that's why moral injury is so rampant mostly in retirees because they now have the time where that stuff percolates and eventually erupts and they see where the rules of engagement weren't clear and where they violated their most sacred understanding of themselves and others. So and that's what moral injury is about. Um, yeah. I will take a little break and then we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, 
Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saul Ebam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, our, our talk with Daniel has continues. Daniel, you were talking about moral injury and the challenges these vets go through. Could you continue to explain more on that? Yeah, when folks violate their most sacred understanding of who they want to be in life, um, they end up yeah, with guilt and shame and um, unhealthy behaviors. And um, as you talked about that last week with the um, angle of sexual abuse, and now we're talking about um, other symptoms that may show up from that underlying moral injury. Um, I just came back from a patient. The patient themselves, they're not a veteran, um, but the son is. And the son is a veteran that is troubled in many ways under VA care. And um, he was at risk for suicide, like um, so many of us are. So, And he knows the warning signs. Um, and that's good because you die when you don't know the warning sign. Mm. Um, and he notices when he's not functioning properly, emotionally and socially. And then he calls his counselor at the VA and gets him what we call safe for now. I've experienced, um, too many suicides in my ministry, uh, both in military and church and, Always, I find very helpful the suicide prevention training that the Army makes us do. I actually did that at church, too. Um, basically, it's ask, uh, it's ACE. Ask, care, and escort. Mm. And ask is the hardest one. Um, if you see somebody is troubled, ask them if they're thinking about killing themselves or suicide. And I insist on those two harsh words, use kill or suicide, just so it's very clear what you're talking about. And a lot of people are hesitant to ask those tough, direct questions because they fear they might give them the idea. They don't. Uh, you don't give them the idea. Um, you just help them clarify. And if they say yes, then you got to follow up with even harsher questions. Do you have a plan? What is your plan? And again, they will let you know. Oh, I, I don't know. And then you may see maybe it's not that dramatic, but then comes the caring part and making sure they're safe for now. Safe for now is the goal until you can finally e-escort them uh, to where they need to be. And by now it's well published, the Veterans Crisis Line, the National Suicide Hotline, uh, or just be at 911 if you don't want to remember any fancy numbers, or their primary medical doctor, or an emergency room. Take them where they get that safe-for-now care um, that you can provide. So suicide is crucial. And then addiction is another one. Um, military and veteran populations have a higher addiction rate than the regular population because they never learn to hmm, talk about their feelings the way they need to. 
um, a lot of times. And so on hospice, that shows up in patients with a history of addiction, and they come from all areas of life. And they hopefully, at one point or another, had some treatment or support for their addiction problem. Um, and if they didn't, I connect them to a little bit of that. Um, and as a chaplain, prayer is one of those tools in my box. And I found it very powerful. As soon as I hear any hint of addiction in a conversation, to offer the serenity prayer in closing. Because um, it really, uh, A, reminds patients of a 12-step program they may or may not have been in and connects back to that experience and those memories and allows them to access those tools again internally. Or it's just a very clear wording, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a very clear path of how to deal with many things in life that are tough. Um, so that's a good tool that I use in people dealing with addiction. And again, suicide and addiction um, are oftentimes caused or have the underlying cause of either moral injury or PTSD, as we talk about veterans today. So um, how have these experiences changed you as a human being, but also as a caregiver? I find my own vulnerabilities and learn to express them better. Um, so caring for folks is tough, and that's why as chaplains we do care for the caregiver with our teams. But that also begins with me. I mean, I couldn't function if I don't have the connection to my therapist, to my spiritual director, to my pastors, um, to the folks around me, to friends that I need to call on um, to just be a connected person uh, that keeps me sane. So self-care is a big one that I want to emphasize for the team in hospice. I find you very interesting because you take the time, I believe, to take the time to be in a relationship with your patient. Uh, you just don't say, oh, you're this, I got a little plan for you, I'll pray for you, and I'll see you in a month. Uh, you, work, you work this very hard, don't you? I don't know another way. I mean, I show up with what I got, and I do with what they need, so, um, and that's what comes out of it. And sometimes, if they just want a little touch and say, hi, and how are you doing? And I'm fine, and I'm out of here. Then that's all I'm going to do. Yes, um, but if that's right. You're listening. You're listening to the patient. something major that comes up. Yeah. I mean, I just, it's refreshing to know that there's someone out there like you who would, who steps out of that extra mile and uh, walks with their patients and whatever it is that they're going through. Well, I also hear that there's a bunch of dedicated hospice chaplains that even make the effort to put on a show for all of us to listen to. Uh, I mean, that way you created a center of excellence that, hey, take this stuff serious. Don't just go there and do your little dance, but mm -hmm. actually think about what you're doing. I exactly. mean, that's why you do this show, I hope. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Encouragement. Uh... Uh, hopefully getting people like you who come in and are willing to share their their gifts and their stories and everything because this is uh, – we, 
we do good work. And, you know, the thing that why I, I'm on this little tangent right here is because, you know, this COVID thing in our area, you know, has limited uh, our in interaction, I'm imagining it has with you too, with all our patients. And they can't get that, that thing that we do because it's hard to do it over the phone. Yeah. So during the height of the pandemic, when all the facilities were shut down, which they aren't in Houston anymore, uh, much, okay, okay. Um, we, we all I could do is provide phone visits to the families, right? Right. Um, and a lot of times for the families, it was the separation because they couldn't see their loved ones, and a lot of times even the facility staff. They were so shorthanded that they couldn't even provide the FaceTime calls for the family mm -hmm. the way they wanted to. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's been the, the challenge that we've experienced here and still continue to, to the most part. Uh, Daniel, part of hospice chaplains is you work with people from all different faith traditions. So how do you cope with that? Well, it's not for me to cope, right? I mean, I help them cope with their... Um, hospice experience, and I provide them the support that they need with what they have. Um, so recently we had a Buddhist patient in a facility under lockdown, and um, her daughter was hoping that I could get a little Buddha statue to that patient to smile over her. Mm. Um, and that's what I did. I spent all morning driving all over Houston finding a little Buddha and eventually delivered it to the facility. I couldn't come in, but the staff there were excited to support that. Um, and eventually we were able to send a picture of that new setup to the daughter to give her the comfort that mother was smiled over by the Buddha. Um, we have Jewish patients on our service. Um, when sometimes they're from out of town because they for the experience of hospice, they move in with family, so they're not locally connected to their synagogue or their religious leaders. And that's when it's important to um, help them find those connections. Um, and that applies to out-of-town churches. I just spoke to a new patient from Louisiana. So her church is back in Louisiana, so she doesn't have a church here. <clears throat> so I'm here to help people to connect to whatever gives them meaning. And again, there's an army tool that helps me, and that is that thing we call perform or provide. As an army chaplain, you can perform all kinds of things, the prayers of your tradition, the rituals and sacraments of your tradition, but then you serve all your people, all your soldiers, all your patients, whatever you want to call them, and so you have to provide for them. Um, so I will call in the Catholic priest for communion or confession, and I will um, drive the Wiccan soldiers to their circles, and I will drive my Muslims to their mosque. And um, so it's the little things that you make happen for folks that otherwise wouldn't get what they need. That is really good co uh, collaboration with other faith uh, traditions of the patients that you serve. That is really good practice. Well, I also believe that is, probably the one reason that Medicare requires hospice chaplains. It's the only reason we have military chaplains is that you need 
free exercise of religion for our soldiers. And the only way the state can provide that is by equipping people to do that under highly secure remote circumstances. So you need army professionals to provide that in that environment. And in a hospice environment, you may have people under lockdown where nobody can come in but the hospice team. So the only way to provide free exercise of religion for a hospice patient who's under lockdown is by having a member of the hospice team be qualified and able to provide that religious support. True. Uh, right now, many, um, you, for you, you're on the field, right? Many In many states, some chaplains are still home. Some facilities are not letting them in. Um, what advice or what encouragement do you have for those chaplains listening to this and they wish to be in the field? Also going through moral injury right now because they're unable to do what they love to do. And that makes you question also your sense of purpose. Last time I told you the story of St. Martin, um, where he rode into the city of Amignan, and I'm telling you that story again because it speaks again to you can do what you can do and not much more. So St. Martin was a Roman centurion in the Roman army, 3rd century, and he rode into the Gaulish city of Amignan, which is now France. It was a cold winter's night. There was a beggar sitting by the roadside, uh, and St. Martin felt compassion for him. So St. Martin took off his big, fat military cloak, drew his sword, cut the cloak in half, shared it with the freezing man, and rode on. Um, you have what you need, is the lesson here. So St. Martin eventually became the patron saint of soldiers and of chaplains. And um, you have what you need. And if you're sitting at home and are trying to reach out to your patients, you're the best equipped person there is your training and your tools and your connections are better than anybody else's. And that's all there is. It may not be enough, but it's the best there is. And you are the best there is. Nobody else is equipped to do your job or even thinks about your job. But you are there to care for your folks and maybe just inside of yourself, you say your little prayer on their behalf. But nobody else can do that. So you are it. And just by being there, you provide something. Mm. So very true. I mean, that is some things that we forget that that's part of what we do as uh, these chaplains that uh, we do with the best that we can and when we can. And uh, unfortunately, we can't make anything different than what's happening right now. Oh, Daniel, you are... Uh, I didn't expect this. I'll be honest with you, Saul. Uh, this has been powerful time for me. Uh, a lot of time for reflection and understanding about all these things and, and how eloquent you are in explaining things that sometimes are very difficult. Uh, I thank you for your op for time being here. I don't have any more questions. Do you have more, Saul? No. Thank you, Brother Daniel. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> this has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, Absolutely wonderful. That was Chaplain Daniel House. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. 
For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.